What are the three most important things you could do this week to have the greatest impact on the organization? Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why talking to customers gives you faster data than looking at analytic reports, the lesson they learn from losing 80% of their company's savings on one ad, and why revenue should not always be the most important organizational goal. Today, I'm joined by Nick from Legacy Box. Legacy Box helps people organize, preserve, and enjoy the most important recorded moments by digitizing aging analog tapes, films, and pictures. And we're starting in 2009 and based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on the show today. Yeah, so I see here 200 employees, 50,000 square feet of space, and you guys are doing a thousands of videos per day. So before all this happened, how did you guys start? Like, were you guys doing it yourself? Like, what's the, the origin story? We, we, uh, we had that typical garage story. So we started in college. My roommate and I were, uh, we were actually sweet mates in college. And uh, he was doing some video work. Uh, and I was doing some web and online uh, design work. And uh, I, I started asking questions. He was moving in all these, all these sort of nerdy video things into, into his room. And uh, I was like, what are you doing? And he explained to me some of the stuff he was doing in video and then how maybe on the side he made some money converting things for people. And, uh, and uh, his website was terrible. Uh, and, so, and, so I, uh, I, and so he asked for my help on that. And, uh, and then we were kind of off to the races. And we learned that, uh, we learned that uh, a lot of people had some of this stuff sitting in their closets and attics just sort of eroding and wasting away all these old analog recordings that needed to be preserved. So that was the beginning of it just in college as, as roommates. Got it. So who, who are these customers? Like who are these describe like your typical customer that would use a service like yours? Yeah. I mean, they're all families. Uh, so it's a pretty broad market. Um, it's, it's basically anybody that's recorded their old family moments. I mean, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's across all income spectrums, all demographics, um, uh, you know, it's, it's all kinds of most important life moments that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, people's birthdays and, and, uh, Christmases and important memories. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all, it runs a gamut, but I mean, obviously, obviously it leans toward married people who, uh, who have kids and have a reason to record these things in the first place. Right. Now, when you guys first got started, where did you find these customers? Like, where were you finding people that wanted this, this kind of stuff done? Yeah, Adam, uh, early on, he, uh, he got an early invite to Google AdWords. It was as they were launching. Uh, and this was, he was still in high school. And so he thought, it gave him like a $50 credit. And he thought, hmm, I'll try this. And I think he had created his website in Microsoft front page. So it was amazing. I mean, it, like scroll, it had cool. scrolling marquees, you know, it had like, it had like little flame GIFs or whatever. Nice. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so... Anyway, he, he, he tossed that $50 credit at Google uh, and started to get calls on his, uh, on his cell phone in high school. Um, and that's how, that's how he first discovered that you could, you could market essentially directly to consumers online. And you're saying that this is, you guys are marketing direct to consumers. Is that because your competitors were not doing that? Like, what was out there already? You know, I I. We didn't, we didn't have the wherewithal to understand that's what we were doing. I think we were just two kind of nerdy guys that, that enjoyed, uh, enjoyed being able to work behind our computers and find customers mm-hmm. that way. Uh, and then we sort of realized the power of it as we started to get a lot of customers and orders came rolling in. Um, and then we sort of became aware of the marketplace. Um, so there was, some, you know, there was one big competitor to us that has distribution through all these retailers uh, so if you go to Costco or something and go to the photo counter, you would drop it off and they'd be the processing company behind that there. Uh, so we realized there were other competitors after the fact that were doing this and had distribution in other ways. I think what drew it to us is just because we were, we were computer nerdy guys that were like, wow, look, you know, we can, we can pull these levers and, and stuff happens. 
Um, but then we realized it was actually a pretty good business model <laughs> to go direct to the consumer uh, online that way. And it gave us a broad reach for what is a traditionally a pretty you know, niche business. Right. And you, you mentioned that one thing that appealed to you was that you guys were able to work behind computers and then find customers and build a business that way. You mentioned the word nerdy right. and it sounds like what uh, this is a really appealing to people that are maybe introverts, right? They're not trying to get out there and doing, you know, going door to door and, and doing all these sales or anything. So with your success that you've had so far, you know, o- almost, uh, I guess almost 10 years, almost a decade in business now, can you do this indefinitely or is there a certain point where you just got to get out from behind the computer? Like, what, what's your, what's been your journey? Yeah, I think both Adam and I, I mean, I think if you took personality, if we took personality tests, they would show that we're introverted. I think both of us had, had, have had to learn as the business has grown. Uh, we have had to get outside of the computer. I mean, we, we've developed business relationships and vendor relationships and all kind, and even talking to customers. I mean, that was sort of the first piece of that where literally now the phone starts ringing I remember the first calls were forwarded from the 800 number to my cell phone. Uh, and uh, literally, we'd have to pause our Call of Duty games in, the, in, our, in our off-campus house. And be like, all right, all right, everybody be quiet. There's somebody calling. Uh, and we'd pick up and go, hey, thank you for calling Legacy Box. How may I help you? Uh, and so you had to get out from, uh, you know, you had to get out from under the computer in a pretty short mm-hmm. while and actually, and actually talk to people. And that's where we learned a lot. You know, I know, I know a lot of, I know it's kind of cool for, for a lot of companies not to have a telephone number out there. And that's great if you can make it work and you don't have to actually have the, you know, telephone support. Awesome. Uh, but I think the flip side of that is that's where we learned a lot. Uh, we would literally talk to customers and then we'd fold those learnings directly back into the site. I mean, they didn't know they were talking to, you know, the two founders, uh, but we would just get off with a phone phone call and go, okay, you know, this was confusing, change this, modify that on the website. You know, this language doesn't make sense here. Uh, people want this service. Uh, and, and so talking to customers was a fantastic way to get real-time feedback on uh, what people wanted and hone our business model. Uh, so anyway, we had to we had to learn how to uh, you know get out from from behind a computer pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So when you're not talking to, to to customers over the phone, the other thing that a lot of people will do is look at analytics or read emails from customers or read comments from reviews. What can you learn by getting on the phone and talking to a customer that you cannot learn from those more kind of online, uh, maybe more impersonal ways? Um, you know that's a great question. I think it's both. So, I mean, I mean, we, we, uh, we live and breathe data over here and that's a great way of, of giving perspective. So I think sometimes if you're talking to people on the phone, it might make, uh, some sort of fringe thing seem like, uh, seem like it has, you know, greater implications than it does. So, I mean, the data can bear that out if you're actually looking at things on a macro level with data. Um, but on the flip side of things, I think the data is always lagging a little bit. Um, and if you're looking at that on a, on a monthly basis or weekly basis or whatever, uh, you might be a little too late. So I think in the early days, especially in like the real startup-y garage days, um, it enabled us to get feedback right away and then, and then fold it back in. I mean, if you think about it, we didn't have a lot of traffic in the early days. We, if, if I talked to, you know, 20 customers in a day, that was probably a lot. So the sample size is really small. If I sat there and waited for some statistical relevance, on data mm-hmm. when we're in the real early stages of things, I'd be waiting for a long time. But if I could talk to just 20 people, I'd have a pretty good sense of where our needs are. Um, and even today, that's, that holds true. I mean, we look at reports and they're all pretty sophisticated and we have all the cool analytic stuff and dashboards and things. But literally, if I just go talk to customers for a couple hours, I'll have a pretty good sense of where our blind spots are. Right. So when you don't have a lot of traffic, when you're just getting started, that kind of qualitative feedback is even more important because that's maybe all you have. And it's the best way to get it from them is just to talk to them on the phone, get them on the phone and ask them these questions. So yeah. speaking of that, that like, what what were you asking? Like, you're getting, you're, it sounds like you're getting great feedback, things that you can actually fold back into the business, back into the design of the website, maybe things that weren't clear or frictioned in the purchase process. Like, what were you asking them to get all of this great feedback? You know, we, we didn't have to ask. They just, they just volunteered. I mean, that's the great thing about a customer. Uh, it, you know, when you're trying to convince someone to spend their hard-earned money on something, uh, that's a tall order in and of itself. And they're going to tell you in pretty blunt terms what they're, 
what their hesitations are. Um, and so we just had to listen more than ask, you know? Uh, and so a good example of that, it was really funny in the early days, uh, you know, we had on our website, we had this button for a service to make DVD. Everybody wanted DVDs. I know that seems like still, you know, ancient history now, but when we first launched, everybody was getting their things digitized DVDs. And, and so we thought, well, people want duplicates of their DVDs, which is technically like the technical name for it is a DVD duplicator, you know? And, uh, and so we had on this website, you know, you can get duplicates and here's the pricing for duplicates, you know? And, and we were like, no one ever buys these. I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. Like I would think they would want them for family and friends and other people. So that's really weird. And I just remember us talking to a customer and they're like, yeah, so how would I order extra copies? And I was like, oh yeah, no one calls them duplicates. They all call them, they all call them extra copies. Uh, and so it was hilarious. We switched the button text on the site immediately. We're like, okay, that's, that's really dumb. DVD duplicates makes no sense. Change it to extra copies. And, uh, and, uh, overnight we quadrupled the number of extra copies we sold. Uh, just because, just because the language was not speaking the language that our customers would. Um, so just listening is actually the most important thing. Um, I would say when talking to a customer. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important because you're saying that even though the terminology they're using wasn't technically right, it's better to to try to avoid trying to hey, educate them or squeeze them into or force them to talk a certain way. Instead, you should be adapting as a store owner, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you should be adapting the language you're using to fit how they're already talking about your solution or their problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the other piece of background is we're, we've always been bootstrapped. So even to this day, uh, we've never taken external funding. And so, you know, we, we, we had no ego about it. I mean, we wanted to do whatever we could to get the sale. Uh, so that if that meant, you know, so to, to your point, we were not going to sit here and expend energy trying to get customers to somehow comport to the the way of thinking or the language mm-hmm. that we would use, we we're just going to go, okay, I'll meet you where you're at. Um, right. And, and that's total, and that's totally fine. And I have no hesitations about that. So, yeah, I think that's a good learning. Um, meet customers where they're at, not, mm-hmm. you know, not, not waste undue energy trying to get them to think or, or use the words or language or perspectives that you might have. Right. So these ads that you guys are running on AdWords, they were going straight to to a phone call. What were people calling and, and talking to you guys about? Were you were you able to close them right away, or like, what was the conversation like? I mean, so our, you know, our industry obviously we're we're digitizing people's old home movies and pictures and films. So they always just wanted to talk about it. They wanted to ask a few questions. Um, yeah, a lot of times they want to know what the process was, or you know, was it safe to do this? Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the funny thing that we learned is if we'd actually speak to somebody, if we had prompt service, and this goes if you have good chat service or good, good email tickets or even good phone calls, if we would be hyper responsive, you know, I'm talking, we picked up right away, not even that we called back in five minutes, you know, um, we would close the majority of those sales. Uh, if we were even slightly outside of that window, I mean, if you think about it, people are busy, they've moved on. You know, they might have been interested in that five minutes, but then, you know, the kid screamed and they had to walk away from their computer and maybe it's just not top of mind anymore. And so we didn't want to take that for granted. So, yeah, I mean, that's we would close a good portion of those sales if we talked to people, uh, which is why we had the incentive to keep to keep doing it. <laughs> right. So you're doing a bunch of these uh, these calls, you're picking a bunch of these calls. How predictable are people in terms of their questions or objections when they get on the phone with you? I mean, we learn extremely, um, and and we also learned that if we changed the language, if we changed the way that we're communicating with them on the front end, that we could predictably change their responses too. Uh, and so, if you know, we always looked for opportunities to avoid friction, not answer friction. You know, so if they had some sort of hesitation or issue that they were bringing to light. You know, we always took it as if somebody called or sent us an email about something that they were hesitant about, imagine all the people that had the same hesitation but never reached out. You know, it's probably a good portion of people. And so um, it, it ends up being very predictable. 
I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about it. That's why statistics and analytics and e-commerce is so intriguing is that you can create a formula for success. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty predictable. I mean, it got to the point where me and my business partner could answer phone calls and talk to people and like, you know, be multitasking 20 other things uh, because we knew exactly what they'd ask. And then we had literally like practiced the responses so many times that we knew exactly what to say. You just enter the zone and then you know exactly what to, 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 to ask and respond. Right. Like, that's, that's great. Yeah. So are you still, are you guys still doing that today? Are you guys still either you or the company taking phone calls from ads today or, or when did that change? We are. Changed? You are. Yeah, no, we have over a dozen people on our customer support team, uh, seven days a week, um, you know, eight to eight PM answering, uh, support tickets, chat or phone calls. Um, it's an important thing for us. Um, especially if you think about the trust people have to have when they're shipping off their one of a kind, mm. you know, life moments to us. Uh, we've always just found that it's an incredibly important piece to have that, um, have a person on the other end of the line that they can actually speak to. I know and so if you have a more simplistic business model, uh, you may not need to have that, but uh, for us, it's important. So yeah, that's still a critical piece. Got it. So when you're building out this customer service team, like how are you able to, to train the entire team up on the things that you guys learn about, what kind of questions they're going to be asking, what kind of responses to expect, like how are you able to, to create that kind of training program? You know, it's hard. I don't think we've ever, I think we continue to try to get better and better at that. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, we, we have little training modules on different types of topics that we go through. We have, um, you know, most, you know, like Zendesk is what we use. I mean, most of them have these pre-written responses that are really good in service templates. Uh, those can be bad if you're not like, <laughs> if you're just sending templated responses, but you're not really thinking about it. Uh, those can be bad, but it allows us to sort of standardize some of the ways that we're speaking. Uh, help center is really important, and we actually have people um, learn about the commonly asked questions and the, and, and the responses through just a really nice up-to-date help center. Um, so that's part of the ways that we train. And then, uh, and then we have, you know, different, different leads there that have been there longer and have been trained longer to help serve as, um, resources to this, maybe the newer folks that, um, that don't, don't have answers to certain Mm -hmm. questions. So is this still an ad today that gives them a phone number to call or are they calling from seeing the phone number on the website? They all call from seeing the phone number on the website. And even in the early days they did. So we would always, Google ads would always drive people to the site. And then our, mm-hmm. our phone number was always on the top of the, of the website. Um, and I think today the phone number might be on the bottom of the website now, but it's still on every page. Um, so it's always, we're always driving to the internet. We're always driving to our website. Um, but then we do have telephone support available um, for, for people. Got it. And so you mentioned earlier that you guys bootstrapped the entire thing. When it did come time to start start investing into the business, what are some of the early investments that maybe made you you guys like nervous? Like, oh, this is this might be this could end us if it doesn't work out. Yeah, we. So, I mean, the thing about bootstrapping is that you have to sort of pool your resources, right? So you're pooling the profit of the company, and then you got to place your bets very strategically. I mean, you only, you know, you might only have like two or three bets that year, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so you're like, we got to make this work. Um, and, um, you know, I remember us getting sort of seduced in the early days or in the garage, but it was literally Rolling Stone magazine. Someone called us, you know, and they're like, this is Rolling Stone magazine. And we thought, oh my gosh, you know, like it's Rolling Stone. How cool is that? Uh, and they said how they wanted to feature the product and this is what it would cost to be in this gift guide. And, uh, and, and here's the millions of people that'll see it. And, and here's my advice. If you ever make, if your rationale for placing bets is ever what ours was, don't do it. Cause we, we looked at it. We said, if we get 1% of 1% of people to buy, we'll be, you know, we'll be rich, you know? Uh, if you ever make the 1% of 1% argument, just walk away. It's bad. It's a bad deal. But anyway, so we, we literally, I remember, I think we had $10,000 in our, in our business savings account. And I think it was like eight for the ad. And, uh, and that's how small the numbers were in that day, in those days. So we're like, all right, here's our savings account. We're trying this ad. And I think I can only attribute one sale 
to the whole wow. thing. Wow. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a big failure. Um, but you know, it, it, it honed our ability to, um, well, one, not to be, not to be, uh, not to be taken in with sort of glitzy and glamoury, you know, I think it was like an ego thing that we were sort of anonymous in a garage and we had these people reach out to us. We thought, Ooh, this is cool. Um, so it, it's sort of a good cautionary tale for that, but then also just making sure you start small and you validate things just the way that we've built every, every, every other marketing channel that we've built has been by starting small and validating it step by step and building it up to something significant. And, and that's been the key. If you think back then to, to that moment where they reached out to you, what questions do you, do you wish you had asked either internally or them to determine if this would have been a good fit? And obviously it wasn't a good fit, but what kind of questions would you have asked to, to, to recognize that this might not be a good fit? Yeah, I think right away I would have looked at, um, and we wouldn't have known this at the time, um, so I would have looked at examples. I would have wanted examples of other companies that have, have been successful there. You know, and then look, do they actually, are they, are they e-commerce companies? You know, are they people kind of like us or not? And so that would have been a good indicator. Had I, had I seen other potential like, you know, direct to consumer e-commerce companies there, uh, maybe that would have been a good indicator. Or maybe I could have even reached out to them, said, Hey, how effective was this? You did this thing, you know, your ad was in here, especially, I mean, most of these guys aren't, comp- you know, most other of, of these when you're looking at direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands online, a lot of you know if they're not a competitor, I mean, people will absolutely share learnings. Um, so I think that would have been something I would have wanted to do: is ask, "Hey, who else is in here? Uh, show me an example." And then maybe I would have vetted it through those people. Uh, the other thing is, if I thought it had any sort of validity, I would have tried to cut the price in, you know, by a quarter. Said, "Okay, great. How can we start with just like two grand? Because, um, you know." we want to be able to try it with the minimal amount of budget as possible to see if there's any life there first. Right. Anything is negotiable. Yeah. That's the other piece. I mean, we were too, we were too young and kind of dopey to realize that, but everything's, everything's negotiable. Right. So everyone wants to be first in, in a marketing channel or they think that they want to be first, but it sounds like after learning those lessons early on, you liked more proven methods today, or at least methods that you can uh, validate. How do you, how do you begin to validate whether, how do you begin a, a test these days to validate if you guys should invest more into a, a new marketing channel? You know, I think we just play small bets. Uh, you know, there's a great, um, I love this book. It's like, let my people go surfing by Yvonne Schwinnard or whatever from Patagonia. And, uh, he's in there. He's like, yeah, we fail a lot. We just make sure that they're small failures. Um, and, uh, and, and as a bootstrap company, I mean, we, we sort of had to adopt that, uh, mindset, you know, we're like, okay, well, we're not going to ever test with the majority of our savings again. Let's just test with a small portion. Um, and so that's all we ever did is we're like, okay, we just won't even touch it. If, if the barrier to entry is so big that, that it's a, it would represent a large risk for us. Let's try something less risky. Um, but yeah, we would just test small. And I think what we're looking for is there has to be some signs of life. You know, if you test small and there's no signs of life, it's not going to get better. And there's a bunch of other, you know, there's like VC funded companies that we've worked with now uh, with millions in budget. And, um, and, it, and it's funny because they don't get that. They think, oh, no, no, if, if you keep, and like Facebook will tell you that, like, oh, keep spending, keep spending, and then we'll, then it'll ramp. It's like the idea of you make it up on, on the volume, even though it's uh, negative. Yeah, you're not going to make it up on volume, you know, like that's silly. Uh, there's just minimum threshold or, min- or or sales quotas people are trying to get to. Um, and so uh, we look for, and, and I'm not saying you have like a winning model, like maybe if you place that $100 bet or $1,000 bet, um, I'm not saying it's going to, it's going to be winning right out the gate, but you see enough positive indicators that, it makes you want to place the next bet. I guess that's what I'd say. And when you look at a new marketing channel, is there a certain budget that makes sense before you can say that this is enough of an investment that we can run a true test 
like obviously you have 10 bucks or whatever it's probably gonna be hard right to tell right if it's a, a good market channel or not so what is a recommendation that you you would give out it yeah it just depends on the channel i think you know i i think um you know adwords for example is when you're paying for clicks i mean you don't need a large budget uh when you're paying for clicks you know if you spend a hundred bucks and you don't at least see one click you know there might be a problem there um so so i think pay-per-click channels have pretty has a lot lower budgets than people would consider on testing um at least at what we find um, but then it, it just depends on the channel. Uh, there might be other channel, other things that are a little bit more cost prohibitive. And, and in that case, then we usually try to just, that's where we would look at other best practices to try to understand, is that legitimate? Do they really need that much budget in order to test it or not? What, why did, you know, that's the question you should ask. You know, if, if somebody comes back and says, no, 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 you know, if we're going to do direct mail, right, we got to at least spend $30,000 and that's how we're going to test it out. Um, I would want to know why, like, why do you say that? Why 30,000? And if there's not good rationale, I would be, I would have a red flag. Mm-hmm. So you guys like to start small with the marketing channels and it, you, you want to get the fundamentals right before right. you, and then kind of then work from there. So what are these fundamentals to you? What are some key things that you want to, to, to get right with each marketing channel? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just look at things like the response rates. I mean, how how many people are actually responding to these ads? Uh, what's what's the you know what are the click through rates on the ads? What are how many leads does that drive? Uh, what are the costs for those leads? Um, and then if you can do that, you know, are those leads any good? Um, are they garbage leads or are they actually qualified leads? And so, um, you know, you you try to figure out how you can sell to those leads and, and test the quality of those leads um, from there. So, I mean, I think that's what you're looking at is, you know, and, and every business is different. So, you know, I talk to people who are they're like, yeah, look, we can, pay, we can pay this much to acquire a lead. Um, and, and other people who say, no, no, we can only do this much to acquire a lead. So um, I think, you know, that's what you have to start understanding in your business. And, that's why that's why I think ad platforms like Google are great to start because they're low budget and you can start to get a handle on what those metrics are for you. Um, and that's what we're looking at. We're like, we know roughly, you know, what we would actually be able to pay for a lead. You know, and we know roughly how well an ad should perform if it's going to be healthy. But that's based on our own historic averages um, just by doing it for 10 years. So you're looking for a winning formula, is what you mentioned. What's a what's a what's a formula? What what do you mean by that? I mean, just a sales formula. I mean, it sounds really you know business schooly, um, but you know, if I'm putting money into the machine, how many how many potential new customers are seeing seeing my message? How many new customers show some interest? How many new customers um, respond to my ads? How many new customers then buy ultimately? Um, and then maybe from there, how many customers buy again? Um, so, I mean, just a sales funnel, I think that's what you're trying to line up mm-hmm. where essentially if I'm putting in a dollar into the machine, you know, I'm getting $3 out. Um, that's sort of the, that's the right. magic. Were there certain formulas that worked out early on that just didn't scale well once you guys got larger? Yeah, I think all the channels have their, um, have their ceiling, um, so, I mean, AdWords is a great example of that. I mean, there's only so many people searching for the type of keywords for our service mm-hmm. out there. Uh, so that's one of them where, I mean, in the early days, so, you know, for the first four years of our company, the only revenue channel we had, the only marketing channel we had were AdWords. And we, and it was, it was, it was slow and painful. Um, um, but it made, but, but then we would focus on all the other fundamentals. You know, we had a, you know, great site, you know, really, you know, good, clear marketing message, good, clear checkout. You know, everything's working really great because, because we only had this one, uh, source of traffic, traffic, if you will. Um, so, um, so AdWord, but AdWords has a ceiling to it. And I think what we, what we realized and struggled with is we were like, okay, well, what's next? 
you know, we need to find another way to continue to scale our business. Um, and, uh, um, and so, yeah, we find that with every channel you, you get in, you, if you find a winner, you know, first you're placing your bets and you're trying it and you're developing this channel. And then if it starts to work, then you're like, okay, how high can I take this? And you will reach a point of diminishing returns where you're like, all right, I can only, this channel is only going to be this unless I cha- radically change something else. This is about all this is going to drive for us. Um, and we've seen that, you know, as, as we've grown. Mm-hmm. What tools are you using to, to measure all of this in terms of like response rates, uh, repeat purchases? Like how do you tie all this data together? I mean, analytics is huge. Uh, so we look at analytics a lot. Like Google analytics or like which? Yeah. Sorry. Google analytics. Um, Google analytics, we're still really fond of here. Um, and if anything, like we feel like Google analytics is very conservative in their, in their, um, attribution, which we like. Um, uh, so yeah, I'd rather be conservative than, not, than the opposite of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we use that. I mean, if we're advertising, like we do, we do a good amount of advertisement on Facebook now. Uh, so, uh, you know, we look at the Facebook, um, Facebook analytics as well. Uh, but we sort of compare that. We triangulate that with, um, platforms like Google analytics as well. Um, so you're looking at all that and then, you know, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we're looking at, you know, now it's, now we're looking at our Shopify dashboard (laughs) and that's the real, the real, the ultimate test is, is what the actual, uh, what the actual sales say. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, those are, those are a few. We're always looking at the analytics from the platform itself, but then also using things like Google Analytics and our own financials to arrive at what we think is the actual truth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we're not, it is not one that we're sold out to. We're like, well, this is the absolute truth. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, they're all just trying to triangulate what, what, what's happening. Um, right. And so we use each as sort of a as a directional indicator towards what's real. Got it. So, so you said that uh, patience is your friend. It lets you absorb lessons at your own pace, and a door open doors happen by being in the game every day. And I think this is such a great lesson here. What What are some of the lessons that required a lot of time, just a time in the game, for you guys to learn? Generally, I'd say um, we've kind of circled around it, but learning how to use resources wide, wisely. Um, that's something you hone when you have patience. Um, and again, it's something that I see missing a lot of times in companies that receive a lot of funding out the gate. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they don't know what they don't know. And so, um, they're utilizing resources and, you know, 90% of it could be waste. What do you see, especially store owners wasting? What kind of resources do you see them wasting? Well, I mean, both money and time. So money and focus, meaning, um, Meaning they'll spend money on things that, and, and they'll spend too much. If if you have if if you have funding, I think the tendency can be to spend too much on mm-hmm. on on tests and things like that. When when you don't need to spend that much, if you're really just trying to gauge um, uh, the validity of something, uh, so they'll spend money on. But then time, so they'll they'll sh- they'll chase shiny objects because it could promise growth. But if if you only have so many things you can do, you really think hard about which ones you're going to do and you might really ask a lot more questions about it. Uh, and so we've found that we'll just do less, but we'll do those really well and we'll make sure to, um, um, vet them more, uh, beforehand. Um, and so we're, because we don't have, you know, even, even in time. So, I mean, we, we never, in the early days, especially it's, it's not like we had all these great, talent that was around us, you know, I mean, now we have a lot of great talented people, but in the early days we didn't. So it was only me and Adam. So you're like, okay, if it's only you and you and your co-founder and you only have, you know, whatever, 80 to you know, hundred hours a week between the two of you, um, you got to choose wisely the things that you're going to apply your time to that are going to make the greatest impact on the organization. And that was the question we're always asking each other. I remember we used to get together with our notebooks at the beginning of each week, and we still do this from time to time, we're like, all right, what are the three most important things you could do this week to have the greatest impact on the organization? And like, because all this other stuff, as an owner especially, are going to try to like totally take you uh, and distract you from that goal. 
Like there's just the, the junk of running a business are just going to creep in from all angles. Um, and so we found if we wrote down those three things, no matter what happened that week, if we got those three things done, we felt like we were accomplished. And then it also focused us in on what is the most three most important things. How often do you do you accomplish that, making sure those three different thing, three things get done? How often is that? Are you able to do that? Yeah, almost every time we take the time to write it down, we get it done. And the, the irony of it is we get it done usually by like Tuesday morning, mm. you know, because like it's written down and it actually doesn't, sometimes it doesn't take that much time, you know, but it must have been the most important thing that you do. Can you share something that, that you wrote down this week that, that you wanted to get done or whenever the last time you did this exercise? Oh man, let me think. I mean, we're, we're doing it a lot. I mean, there's a new partnership that we're working on that uh, we needed to get some uh, contract paperwork done and we had to review it and really put our minds to it to make sure that it was, it was structured well. And how did you know that that was something? How did we know it was the most important thing? I yeah. think just by, but if we're drawing a line, I think, you know, Adam and I talk a lot, Adam, my business partner, and I talk about like drawing lines, you know, like meaning, meaning looking forward, are, are we, are we even, are we on a downward slope? Are we on a high slope? You know, are we, and the, the, with the goal, of course, that you're always growing. And so we're trying to look at the trajectory of something and the potential of something. And usually that's a good indicator of where we should be spending our time. So that partnership has the potential to be very uh, impactful to the organization. So we need to get that next step done. God. So even before you write down these three greatest thing, three three things that have the greatest impact, you have to know what direction, what goal you have, like what what is the target that you're going after, and if it's about growing the top line, then that can give you different direction than cutting expenses. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to have an idea of the objectives and the goals that you're trying to achieve, um, and then just a good sense of evaluating the opportunities that are available to you, because there's always going to be a bunch of opportunities that you could do. Um, and, and learning how to evaluate those well is, uh, is not an easy thing to do. Um, but yeah. As an organization, should the goal ever be different than just growing revenue? Like why, why wouldn't that just be like the only thing? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, I think for a lot of organizations that is the only goal. Um, Mm -hmm. yes, I think, I don't think that's, um, no, I think you have to you have to have an honest assessment of what your organization needs at that time. Um, and so, for example, I mean, one of the benefits to not having investors um, is that we don't have the external pressure to consistently grow. So we have during seasons of our business where um, where we know we're pushing growth too hard, and we need to we need to give ourselves a little more margin to maybe take care of the organizational needs that are there. Uh, maybe the most important thing that week has nothing to do with growth. Uh, it might have to do with, you know, training or management or, you know, some sort of culture or human resources type, type thing, um, you know, organizational type goal. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's whatever the organization needs at that point. I mean, I think that's the other benefit if you can be patient is that way you can respond to the needs of the organization, whatever they are. Um, not simply be pushing growth to the detriment of, you know, or the neglect of a- a- anything else that your company might need. Right. I think you guys are a great example of of patience because you, it took you five years to start hitting scale. And you mentioned right. that those first years were slow, but your greatest proving grounds. What made you guys stick it out for five years? I think it's a long time for people to stick anything out, even if they have some success. But if you're going slow for five years, like that must, what was that? What was that like? So I think we had hard conversations all the time. Like, is this worth it? You know, should we continue? Should we double down? I know, you know, Adam's aspirations when he was in college was to be a a lawyer. And uh, I know his parents were always talking to him like, when are you going to go to law school? When, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was married and my wife was like the primary breadwinner for our household. Um, she was infinitely patient. She seemed to think everything would be fine, which is amazing. Uh, so she didn't apply any pressure, but I felt enough of it myself. Um, so I think that's tough. I don't have a good answer on that. I think we stuck with it because there was uh, 
enough possibility still there that we felt we owed it to ourselves to keep exploring. Uh, we, we knew like we would see indicators that would, in, that would show us that I think there's more here. We just haven't quite found it yet. Um, and so we kept at it for, for a while. Um, so that's why, that's how we could keep doing it every day and keep deciding, yeah, yeah, this is still, this is still a worthwhile thing. What's funny is after that, once we really hit our stride, once we, uh, once we could, once we sort of uncovered, um, some of those paths to growth, I mean, that's where we grew 1200% in two years. Um, so it was, you know, two, two and a half or three years, I suppose. Um, so anyway, it was, it was crazy. It was like a lot of, a lot of preparation, preparation, but it wasn't, it wasn't wasted time, I guess is my point. Like we had actually honed this model so tight that it was ready to scale. I mean, it was, it was just waiting to put another, you know, strap another engine on there and this thing's ready to roll. What was that? What was that event that, that took the, like pretty that, you know, the hockey stick moment where it was an inflection point and things just took off? Yeah, I think it was realizing that, um, you know, we, like I said in the beginning, we, we didn't realize we were sort of this direct to consumer model or we were this e-commerce model. It was just something that we naturally went to. Um, and I think when we really embraced that, we're like, Hey, you know, you know, I mean, at the time when we're in those five years of, of slow growth, we're trying everything. I mean, I was like going door to door, maybe we need retail distribution. I mean, like all these out there crazy things that were a waste of time at that, at that time. Um, and when we finally just said, Hey, we should embrace that we're e-commerce retailers and look to what other great e-commerce companies are doing. Um, and see if they apply to our business. That's when we realized, yep, they do. And, and we just started, um, and we, and we just started mm -hmm. growing like crazy. Yeah. It was like a mindset. It was like a mind frame switch to go. We are direct, direct to consumer e-commerce company, you know, let's do what other, you know, and then, and then we started looking at other people for inspiration and started applying those principles to what we were doing and it, and it worked extremely well. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorites in terms of e-commerce, I guess, role models that you guys look to? Oh, I don't know. There's a ton of great companies out there. Uh, you know, we're looking at new ones all the time. There's this new, uh, <laughs> I just bought this deodorant from native. I think they're doing a great job. I don't know. I don't know how their business Mm -hmm. looks numbers wise, but, uh, I was, I was, uh, converted. They had a really great, I was screen capping some of the really clever things they had on their product <laughs> page, uh, the other day and sending them to, uh, to somebody that I liked. So, I mean, there's ones like that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I mean, all the ones that people would be familiar with. I mean, I have all the trendy stuff. I got a way luggage, you know, we have Casper mattresses. We've got, you know, Harry's razors. Wow. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> we, we, you know, all the, all the trendy things. I do it because I'm actually, I feel like it's a little bit of research. I'm like, yeah. hmm, I wonder what their packaging looks like. I wonder what their customer support is like. I wonder how they do this. I've definitely bought products that I, that I did not actually want just because I felt like they had a really good marketing funnel. I wanted to see how far it would go. So definitely right. uh, feel you on that. So you got, you, you mentioned 1200% in three years was when that, that, that mind shift that's, that was a result of the mind shift that, that, that you guys had, mindset shift that you guys had. Can you give us an idea of the growth of the company these days? Like how much has it grown to? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we are, um, you know, we'll do, you know, a little over 20 million this year in revenue. Um, at our peak seasons or on our holiday seasons, we have um, about 200 employees and uh, there's some seasonal people in there, so it'll settle out around summertime when it's our slowest time at around 150, 160 employees. Uh, we continue to grow at a pretty good, pretty good rate. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing, we're doing a lot, uh, these days. So you guys have your, your peak season. Do you guys have like a, a peak during the holiday shopping season? This is a kind of product or service that people purchase during that time. It is. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty strong all year round, so it's not a seasonal business. Um, it's, it's strong year round. I, I would say that there, you know, there's a, and this might be similar to a lot of e-commerce. There's a huge spike in sales around the holidays, starting with, you know, Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. uh, through to, through December. I find that that's probably the time where people are looking at their old videos, right? Or something. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, obviously everybody's getting together with family members and things like that. So you're kind of feeling nostalgic already. These are good family oriented holidays. So it makes sense that you could, you could give a gift like legacy box, um, around those times. Um, the, the crazy part is we actually sell a good portion of legacy boxes, which means we ship these mail-in kits to everybody. Uh, so we're just shipping truckload and truckload of these like empty kits, these legacy box mailing kits to everyone. And then we actually feel that the production team feels the, the impact of that into the new year. So January and February is when we're having to process it all. So we, we look at it as waves. We have two waves. Our customer service and marketing is like the first wave, and that's, you know, in November, December. Our production team is feeling the second wave, which comes January and February. Do you notice during that, that holiday shopping season, the, the marketing channels are shifting or does it stay the, stay the same, just accelerate it uh, overall? Yeah, I mean, uh, for us, uh, and, uh, you know, we kind of feel like geniuses going into that time of year because almost <laughs> everything seems to just work a lot better. Um, so there's a little bit of a high there where you're like, oh, my gosh, everything's, so, everything's working yeah. so great. Uh, you know, but then January rolls around and you realize, oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, that's because it was the holiday. We're not we're not as smart as we think we are. Um, so yeah, everything works a lot better. Um, there are some channels that become cost prohibitive, and you just you know you don't do them as much during that time of year too. Uh, like Facebook comes to mind. I mean, it's a pretty competitive marketplace. A lot of huge brands come into Facebook coming into Q4, um, and so. Um, yeah, that can drive costs up where it doesn't make sense to do it around the holidays, but then you can kind of resume when things settle back down. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I want to talk a little about the website. Uh, any particular apps that you guys rely on to help run the business, uh, run the website? Yeah, like uh, like plugins on, on our Shopify site? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we use Yachtpo. I mean, that's great for reviews, um, and that's a really important thing to us so we can, you know, showcase you know, some of those customer, customer experiences on our site help drive conversion. Um, just do know is an important one for us because we can, uh, display different promotions live on the site, uh, depending on where the traffic source is coming from. So, uh, so just do is great. Uh, we use this thing called like crush.pics, uh, so I mean, just helping to keep good site speed, which is really important. Uh, I mean, we've seen, we've learned this lesson where we're like, we're our design and development team. And they're adding all these cool features to the site, cool features to the site. And like all of a sudden it's getting sluggish and uh, our conversion rate suffering as a result. So uh, make sure we're always having a fast, um, fast site are important. So, I mean, those are, those are a few, we use a bunch, but we test a lot of them, uh, but we try not to use any that are, that aren't necessary um, just because we want to have, you know, we just want to have the cleanest code and cleanest site speed that we can have. Uh, so, yeah, those are those are ones that come to mind. Mm. And is that because you're seeing more like mobile users? Like, what's the is is that starting to shift that direction even more these days? Yeah, well, I'll, so this isn't necessarily a plug-in, but I think a, a really critical piece and, and actually a really great thing since we've um, transitioned all of all of our all of our sites to Shopify has been um, site site speed, but then reliability. Um, that's huge. Uh, I mean, when we had sort of a hodgepodge of our own different things running it, every there's like always something that felt like it was going wrong. And, and when you're driving the amount of traffic we are, that's incredibly painful uh, to experience that. Uh, so then, so the reliability, but then uh, you talk about mobile and I think of um, payment options. Uh, the, the Shopify checkout with the ability to have all these really easy mobile payment options um, has been a really important piece for us. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, I think we're seeing, we, we continue to see a big shift to mobile. Uh, I think everybody, obviously everybody does. Right. Is there a reason why you would not just add every single payment option possible? No, no, there's no reason <laughs> that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, we just, we just keep adding them if we can. Uh, the only weird part is just, I mean, we had to work with our finance team and then our process, our, our actual production team to make sure that we like pass through all the data correctly um, because for us, we're doing a service. So people are sending them in. We have to do all this stuff and then actually ship out this completed service and product back to them. So we need to make sure we're passing along all that information 
correctly and, 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 and even all the payment information through correctly. Uh, so when we add payment options, it gets a little bit more complicated, but for us, it's totally worth it. I mean, if we can make more sales, I'll figure out all the other details. Right. So you, like, you would never see conversions going down by adding a payment option? No, we've never experienced mm-hmm. that. The more options, the better we've found. Now, what about the um, the actual design of the website? It sound like you guys have worked with the outside agencies to help build it. Yeah, we have. Uh, I mean, my background's in, in in design, and in the early days, I designed all of our website, um, and then we have our own design team now and development team in house, so we still shoulder a lot of it. Um, but yeah, we've used outside agencies to to sort of supplement that as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think the biggest thing that we've learned in our journey of web design and e-commerce has been um, clarity, clarity of message, um, clarity of what what actions you want the customer to take, um, clarity of your value propositions. Um, just just a lot of clarity. I think in the early days we wanted to strive to be like clever and funny and cute, um, but uh, you, you, the more clear we we strive to make the message, the better. And actually, we think that's really respectful of the customer. I mean, if you think about the way you browse the internet, you're constantly just scanning things and processing and going, am I in the right place or not? And you're making a snap judgment. And so if you keep that in mind, uh, people are people live noisy lives. Uh, so you kind of need to cut to the chase if you're, you're trying to sell them something online. Um, so yeah, that's been our biggest evolution as we look at the design of the site is... Um, with the respect of the customer in mind, let's let's strive to be as clear as we can with with what we're mm-hmm. trying to provide them. Is there something that you've removed recently or in the past that has made a big difference in that regard? It's hard to say. I think it's just been through a lot of subtle details. Um, you know, the language and the copying that copy that we're using. Um, yeah, no, nothing that pops into my head off the bat <laughs> on that one. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time, Nick. So legacybox.com is the website. Anywhere else that, or I guess, where, where do you guys want to see the, the company go over the next year? Yeah, I mean, we can see, we continue to see a trend in, uh, in helping people digitize their items and, and, and store them on the cloud. So we continue to do that. Uh, most market research shows this market quadrupling over the next decade. There's literally mm-hmm. billions of these things out there. And um, and, and people are now just discovering that, Hey, you know, my VCR doesn't work. Uh, so I need to figure this out. So, uh, we feel really great about what the future holds. And then we obviously see that transition to the cloud being a natural one. So, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great opportunities on the horizon. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time again, Nick. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com masters.